On this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the latest news in the ASC industry, review takeaways from the Illinois State Association meeting, and in our focus segment, we'll review the requirements for credentialing and privileging of providers. Welcome to the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, the longest-running podcast specifically focused on the freestanding ambulatory surgery industry. We would like to thank our sponsors, Surgical Information Systems, providing cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers, Trivalence. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable data insights, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, please visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. Welcome to episode 197 of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey for August 30th, 2023. We're recording from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC Podcast with John Gailey and Operations Manager for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. We'd like to remind our listeners that the ASC regulatory environment is a rapidly evolving landscape and the material presented in this episode is based on the most current information available as of the date of recording. As such, it is important to recognize that this information may be subject to change, and we advise all ASCs to stay up to date with the latest regulations and guidelines issued by their relevant regulatory bodies. And joining me today is John Gailey, the owner of Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies and one of the most respected experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. With over 30 years of experience, Mr. Gailey has authored over 10 books on the ASC industry, and he is a sought-after speaker on regulatory accreditation and finance issues. So as I mentioned, we're in Myrtle Beach. We're kind of hoping to avoid the storm. <laughs> <There's>, <laughs> we're um, recording on a uh, pretty ugly day outside, though. Yeah. Strangely beautiful. I mean, even these storms down here are mm-hmm. kind of interesting, but today we, we can barely see out our uh, balcony here to, yeah. to even see the swimming pools below and <laughs> as in this resort. But Her as we do... Adalia. Adelia, Adelia, right. yeah. And, uh, you know, as we do often, we do record podcasts during our vacations. It uh, probably is not what normal people do, but at least <laughs> we uh, we have something to do on these uh, these rainy days. Um, so we're uh, we're here for a week, and we'll probably record a second podcast also while we're down here, since the weather's probably not going to be yes. great for the rest of the week. We have a couple days of rainy weather, so might as well take advantage of it. And Sue, so you uh, rushed me uh, into the car as soon as I got off the airplane from uh, my my trip to the Illinois State Association meeting in Chicago or outside of Chicago. Mm-hmm. It was a great conference, first time I've ever been there. Uh, I had an opportunity to speak at uh, two two speeches. I was uh, doing a speech on accreditation, uh, something kind of new, like uh, what, what's the current status of accreditation in the uh, in the ASC industry. And then I was covering for another speaker who was talking about uh, the Illinois state regulatory situation. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was it was great. I I very much enjoyed it, and I had an opportunity to meet with our friend uh, Bill Prentice. Uh, we're going to talk about that a little bit later because I got a lot of interesting insights from Bill this time. Of course, you know, Bill and I are often on the same speaking tour, so I think it's 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 very common that we haven't heard something uh, mm-hmm. that the other has spoken about. And this time uh, he had some very interesting insights that I very much enjoyed. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. While I was there, I also had an opportunity to uh, uh, have lunch with our sponsor, Tribalance. Paul Dobbelhoff, uh, who was with one of our other sponsors, SIS, uh, changed over to Tribalance, and uh, we had a great lunch talking about the the future of their uh, up and coming company, and uh, and also uh, talking about what we can do to support them. And in the evening, I had a great steak dinner with uh, one of our patron members, Andre, who uh, mm-hmm. we've been uh, meeting with, uh, you know, virtually for a couple years yeah. now. I, Sue, I was shocked at how tall he was, you know, <laughs> at least a head taller than me. Yeah. Uh, certainly gets a lot of attention when he walks into a room, but it was a lot of fun. I uh, very much enjoyed that time. 
Well, we're, it's so nice when we get to actually meet our, our patron members. You know, he and two or three other people are regulars on our Friday or Saturday sessions whenever right. we end up doing it. And we've met, I think, at least most of the really regular people yeah, absolutely. in person. Absolutely. And, and just a reminder, the uh, patron members have an opportunity to kind of, we call it a drop-in session, mm-hmm. a drop-in Zoom session that we do uh, uh, once a week, usually on Saturdays right now, though we experimented with Fridays for a while, but that didn't work yeah. very well. So Yeah, and, I, and as you said, drop-in, I think it's been brought up to us that we should stress that because a lot of people think, oh, I don't have a whole hour on yeah. Saturday, but sometimes people just pop in, they ask a question, there's... Usually, well, John's always there, and then Lori is pretty much always there. Right. She's another surveyor and, and an infection control expert. And Sometimes we'll have life safety people on. So, yeah. you know, if you ever have a question, you've got a survey coming up. That's a, a really great resource. I feel it's also a self-help group, too. too. Yeah, because yeah. you've got your little um, a peer group where right. people can bounce ideas off of each other and, and, and brainstorm answers. And it is a benefit for our patron members as well mm-hmm. as anybody that's been involved in any of our boot camps. So, Sue, we have some news, as we always do. So why don't you lead off with uh, some of the interesting things going on? Some areas are reinstituting those mask mandates. Um, since the CDC dropped its universal masking guidelines in September of 22. Um, the healthcare facilities are going to have to make their own decisions on, at least for now, on whether to reinstitute masking based on the prevalence in their communities or, you know, sometimes among staff. We've had even just individual centers that, mm-hmm. you know, suddenly a whole lot of the staff is out sick and they might start masking for a short time. Right. Yeah, we had one center that 10 employees were out yeah. all at once. And yeah. They were a large facility, but still, you know, that would made up, you know, 20% of the workforce, which mm-hmm. was, you know, quite debilitating. So some health systems that are currently requiring masking are Kaiser Permanente in California, United Health Systems in New York, Auburn Community Hospital in New York, Upstate Medical Medicals Hospital in Syracuse, New York. So there's kind of a trend there with New yeah. York, but not so much in New York City, it looks like, so at least for right now. So some of these mandates may be short term. I know some of them mentioned like they might just do it for two weeks and kind of see how, mm-hmm. how things go. So just following, depending on the rates and the severity of COVID in their community. And the new updated booster they're expecting should be available in September. So hopefully that'll get us through the winter without too much trouble. I know none of us want to go back to to all of those issues we had to deal with before. just seems to me like uh, when you and I go in for our boosters, Sue, so we're mm-hmm. going to have like, you know, four shots you know the flu the covid i think i'm due for uh um, yeah uh, well maybe rsv and rsv now now, yeah not that we're getting old but it is for the old and the young so (laughs) we might be there now yeah um and the health resources and services administration which is an agency of the u.s department of health and human services is investing more than 100 million dollars to address the nursing shortage so that is a good thing. I know it's been a, a long-term problem. So some of the key priorities are to help licensed practical nurses to become registered nurses. They're putting in $8.7 million to train LPNs and LVNs to become registered nurses, almost $65 million to train advanced practice nurses who will deliver primary care, mental health care, and maternal health care, which is good, too, because there's also obviously a shortage of primary care doctors, so that would address both of those things. Um, And to address the bottleneck in nurse training by supporting more nurse faculty, $26.5 million through the Nurse Faculty Loan Program to provide low-interest loans and loan cancellation to incentivize careers as nursing school facility faculty, which is... I think really important because even though, you know, we've needed nurses for so long and everybody kind of says, well, why can't we get enough? But really, a lot of times there's just not, you know, the schools are still very selective because they just don't have the openings. It's a good all-around way of addressing everything. Yeah, and I had taught in one of the uh, nursing programs, I taught the finances in one of the nursing programs in Rochester. I don't even believe that program uh, is as big as it was back in the 90s mm-hmm. when I was teaching there. I think all of them had to cut back because of the challenges in getting yeah. nurses to uh uh, to be on faculty, you know, in these mm-hmm. universities. So, And the American Society of Anesthesiologists recently released recommendations for patients using GLP-1 receptor agonists, such as Ozempic, Manjaro, and Trulicity. These medications, uh, people probably know, are used for weight loss, type 2 diabetes, and cardiovascular risk reduction. So they're associated with delayed gastric emptying, 
nausea and vomiting, and that's kind of how they help people lose weight. Mm -hmm. Um, The concern is that this can obviously increase the risk of regurgitation and aspiration of gastric contents during um, general anesthesia and deep sedation. So for patients scheduled for elective procedures, they, they recommend that you consider the following. Prior to the procedure, for patients on daily dosing, consider holding the GLP-1 agonist on the day of the procedure or surgery. For patients on weekly dosing, consider holding that um, a week prior to the procedure. This suggestion is irrespective of the indication, so whether, you know, no matter what it's for, whether mm-hmm. it's for diabetes or weight loss. And if it is prescribed for diabetes management, um, they do recommend that you consider um, asking the patient to consult with their endocrinologist. So on the day of the procedure, if GI symptoms such as severe nausea, vomiting, retching, abdominal bloating, or abdominal pain are present, consider delaying the elective procedure and discuss the concerns of potential risk of regurgitation and pulmonary aspiration of gastric contents with the proceduralist um, surgeon and the patient. And if the patient has no GI symptoms and the medications have been held as advised, you, you should be able to proceed as usual. If the patient has no GI symptoms but the medication was not held as advised, proceed with full stomach precautions or consider evaluating gastric volume by ultrasound. Now, they do say if you're going to do that, um, obviously only if it's possible and if you're proficient with the technique because I don't think that's something a lot of people are, are experienced at. If the stomach is empty, then proceed as usual. If the stomach is full or if gastric ultrasound is inconclusive or not possible, consider delaying the procedure or treat the patient as full stomach and manage accordingly. Discuss the concerns of potential risk of regurgitation and aspiration with the surgeon or the proceduralist and with the patient. And there's no evidence to suggest the optimal duration of fasting for patients on GLP-1 agonists. Therefore, until we have adequate evidence, we suggest following the current ASA fasting guidelines. And again, all that information is from the American Society of Anesthesiologists. I, I did want to note that this is becoming much more important as the prevalence of this medication. And I guess it's a very successful medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's becoming more, more and more popular. You're more and more likely to find patients that are on this. Yes. And they might not even think about, you know, the ramifications for mm-hmm. the surgery. Mm-hmm. And definitely, I do want to just point out these are just recommendations and you really need to get your anesthesiologist involved and, you know, have that discussion and they can make some protocols for themselves, decide what they want to do. And uh, speaking as a surveyor, make sure that you document this through the quality improvement process mm-hmm. uh, and or the uh, medical executive committee if, uh, if you have one in your organization. We're going to give you more, a link for more information so that you can see the, uh, the actual source document for mm-hmm. this. I did want to talk about some of the key takeaways from the Illinois State Association meeting. Uh, again, I we didn't have an opportunity to do any interviews while we were there. We're, we're going to talk about doing that in the future. And uh, and I do want to thank the organization of the association for their uh, hospitality during the, the conference. So one of the biggest takeaways uh, from the Illinois meeting was a session that Bill Prentice from the uh, ASC Association, ASCA, mm-hmm. uh, presented. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's not always um, – a lot of new information that I get going from one conference to another mm-hmm. that we haven't spoken about. But he brought up some very interesting points that I thought uh, worthy of discussing here. Uh, so he started by talking about the 2024 proposed CMS HOPDASC payment rule, which we know came out in July. And we did an episode uh, that talked about the the uh, key takeaways from, from that rule. But he had a couple things to add. He noted that ASCA had proposed some 60-plus new procedures to be added to the approved Medicare procedure list, including total shoulders, uh, when, it, you know, it's kind of strange because they already have total hips and total knees uh, on that list. So mm-hmm. not to have total shoulders done when I would think hips would be a, you know, a lot more intensive procedure. I know it's a much, much yeah. more intensive procedure. So it didn't really make much sense. But none of those 60 plus radars, matter of fact, there were no new procedures added other than dental procedures, which is kind of interesting because while we're grateful that they added them, uh, nobody really asked to have those procedures added, yeah. uh, including the American Dental Association. So we're not quite sure what happened there or how that came about. Uh, of course, ASCA will be uh, contesting this or, or at least make, mm-hmm. sending some comments and asking again to have uh, uh, reconsideration for those 60-plus procedures that they're re- requesting yeah. to be added to the Medicare approval. So I wonder if that's because they're probably not getting as much pushback on the dental procedures as they do um, the hospital 
Exactly, especially those totals, because we know those are very profitable procedures for the hospitals. And and given that most of those dental procedures are probably done on patients with uh, developmental disabilities, um, it, it might be more difficult for the hospital to uh, justify continuing to do that in that mm-hmm. environment, whereas they can make a lot of money by doing those total joints. Not sure if that's the reason, but that's one possible reason. One of the arguments made for restricting ASCs from doing some of these procedures on Medicare patients is because... Uh, there's the argument that the HOPDs have access uh, to the hospital, you know, the ability to transfer patients uh, quickly mm-hmm. to the hospital. But this isn't really true as, as much anymore because so many of those mm-hmm. HOPDs are actually built off campus. So yeah. they're not, they, they could be as far away from the hospital as, you know, the average surgery center is. So that argument is starting to fall in deaf ears. Yeah. And if it was, if that were truly the case, they could make some type of a rule that they had to be within a certain distance from a hospital regardless of if it was an ASC or an HOPD so that doesn't really seem to be valid. So Sue, uh, Bill asked the audience to predict uh, what percentage of the uh, Medicare budget uh, ASCs make up and nobody guessed. It's one half of one percent which is you know a 0.5 percent really which is an extremely small number which is why nobody really spends a lot of time thinking about you know our industry when it comes to Medicare costs and yeah we can save them so much money. Uh, he also uh, noted that the uh, quality reporting measures sometimes make little sense as a measure of actual ASC quality, which we've talked a little bit about on the, mm-hmm. on the podcast here because the Medicare quality measures just, you know, uh, and, and there were very few changes this year, but they don't really seem to be uh, the types of measures that, that really help us to determine or show that we are as good as what we think we are mm-hmm. uh, with regard to uh, the quality in the organization. And he gave an example of another measure that's being looked into. And this is from a Yale New Haven study that is researching the effectiveness of discharge instructions. And yet, as Bill noted, there's no proof that there's a problem in ASCs or hospitals, for that matter, uh, with the discharge instructions. So why are they mm. spending so much time looking at it when, yeah. you know, as a quality measure, it just doesn't seem to be uh, uh, that uh, that major? Uh, Bill also talked about the OAS caps. Uh, I don't know that we've ever spelled this for our audience, but it's OAS-CAHPS. So if you want to look it up or research it on the Internet, uh, that's how you spell it. Uh, so he talked about that and noted that uh, that it will definitely be required in 2025. Uh, he said there is no way that at this point they are going to hold off the implementation of that. So we need to start the process of contracting with an approved OAS CAPS provider. Uh, this is going to be an extra expense. It's going to be considerably more than whatever you're doing right now, unless you're already implementing OAS CAPS, uh, for your for your satisfaction surveys. And the whole thing is the the questions aren't going to be as specific or as helpful as what we're doing now. And I don't know that people are going to be able to do that and also have their own patient satisfaction. So right. I, I feel like this is actually a step backwards, even though it's going to be incredibly hard to implement. Right. And, and to that point, we, we know that because there are, what is it, 36 questions, I think, uh, that are being asked. 38, a yeah. lot. <laughs> it's a lot of questions. It doesn't matter. It's over 30. Yeah. It's over five. I, I My argument is if you really want to get a good satisfaction yeah. survey, you know, don't ask more than five questions. Because I know myself, if, mm-hmm. if I get a survey from a, a car company, you know, like a, a maintenance or for a hotel, I get a lot from hotels. Yeah. If they ask me more than five questions, I'm done with that. And yeah. usually I like it to be two or three. And you can get the most important, you know, are, did you experience too much pain? Right. Were people, were, was everything explained to you? You know, you can ask a very few questions and get really good information. I don't right. know why they're doing this. Well, and, and also uh, there's the concern that the only people that are going to complete a survey of that many questions mm-hmm. are going to be the ones that, that are really upset. upset. So so Bill kind of noted, and, and we've said this too, be prepared for your satisfaction results to go down mm-hmm. uh, as a result of that. Um, and I do, are, are people going to be, fo- I mean, you probably don't know this, but I wonder if they're going to follow up on what percentage is returned. I mean, if the, the percentage of patient satisfaction surveys that are answered drops way down, I wonder if they'll ever reconsider. Probably that's wishful thinking, but. Well, and, and, and OAS CAPS has its own requirement with regard to, to how mm-hmm. many surveys have to be done. Yeah, based but if people aren't willing really to answer it, though, yeah. then. 
I, what can they do? Well, and I do know that that is part of the requirement for the provider, mm-hmm. you know, the way us CAPS provider, which has to be approved by CMS, by the way. Yeah. Not anybody can do, not everybody can do this. You have to be an approved provider. And that was another point that Bill made is that we really need some competition. There's not a lot of competition, yeah. which means that the, the quality of these service providers could, you know, could diminish as, mm-hmm. as the need for that increases um and you know and they stretch their their resources so we're really encouraging outside providers to uh, step up and get get their approval uh, from cms to be an oas provider it would be good to be able to get a list of you know to to really have a a few to choose from so people can start doing that i don't know if people even know where to start at this point yeah and and that list is available on the cms website we should probably try to find that and put it in the show notes um, and then uh, Bill went on to talk about our, our favorite, uh, one of our favorite topics here, MedPAC. MedPAC, you might remember, is a uh, committee of the United States Congress that looks into the Medicare payment system. And MedPAC continues to insist that ASC should be required to submit annual cost reports um, to Medicare, such as the hospitals and nursing homes and home health agencies do. And since CMS has so far refused to make that requirement, MedPAC continues to recommend that we receive no inflationary update. So MedPAC has not been our friend really in the industry here. They, they really want to, you know, put some additional regulations on us that really don't make a lot of sense. As, as Bill noted, one of the reasons that CMS has refused to implement a process for filing Medicare cost reports for ASCs, uh, is that there's really no value added to it. And our payment system is based upon the hospital cost reports, and that's not likely to change anytime soon. Uh, MedPAC also continues to push for site-neutral payments, paying, which means paying the same for procedures performed no matter where that procedure is performed. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that uh, ASC reimbursement rates are going to go up to the hospital rates. It means that the hospitals are going to uh, find that their rates are going to be coming down to our rates. So we're actually going to talk about that in our next episode, a little bit about price transparency and some of the, uh, um, the issues going on here. Uh, but uh, Bill did notice, note that 15 states currently require hospitals to post their charges on their website, and he's concerned, as are we all, that this would be uh, pushed on us eventually. In our last episode, we talked about the anesthesia crisis, and, and Bill addressed this issue by noting that the government created this problem by restricting the number of slots in medical schools, and it's going to take mm-hmm. a long time to fix this problem. Uh, and he also noted that uh, it really has... T- somewhat to do with the No Surprises Act, which uh, has really had a a very negative impact on anesthesia, who find it uh, implementing this policy, this this, uh, requirement, very difficult since they really generally only see the patient on the day of surgery, which means they can't comply with the No Surprises Act requirements. I thought one of the other interesting uh, comments that was made also by Bill was, Compared to where we were, even when we started this podcast, you know, about six years ago, uh, that nobody is arguing anymore that ASCs don't provide a safe environment for surgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for so long, that was one of our biggest arguments, that just because we're not on a hospital campus doesn't mean that we can't provide a safe uh, surgery, if not safer surgery, in, a, in an ambulatory surgery setting, uh, as, the, as does the hospital. So I think... Uh, uh, that was a, a good comment showing how far we've gotten uh, with regard to getting our message about quality and safety out there. And Bill finishes a uh, whole discussion by encouraging people to participate in future Washington fly-ins, uh, which is an opportunity to meet with the representatives uh, to push you know the ASC agendas out there. So we'll keep you informed as to when the next one is. Uh, one other session that I found interesting uh, was from a lawyer, Susan Lorenk, I think is how you pronounce it. She's with Thompson Coburn. And she was talking about changes to the Illinois regulations, uh, especially with regard to human resources. And I find a few, few things interesting, Sue, um, and potentially something that could spread. So even though she was talking specifically about Illinois, uh, she didn't mention that these are things that are potentially being considered elsewhere. And she did note that both New York and Illinois are going to require ASCs to post the pay scale and benefits in job postings. Ostensibly, this is to stop the trend of women being paid less than men. And of course, this could be quite troublesome for ASCs as we have yet another regulation that we need to follow and which would kind of push people to, uh, you know, shop for 
uh, employment based purely on on the amount of money that they're getting paid. Mm-hmm. So I think that'll push our salaries up, which could, you know, I, I guess as nurses, that's great to see that your salaries would be going up. But for ASCs that are trying to balance the budget, it could be very difficult. Then there was also a panel discussion about recruitment, and the, the speakers there noted that we need to start moving away from our aversion to uh, hiring inexperienced people. Uh, we just don't have that luxury anymore. And I was thinking about that, you know, for so long in our industry, you know, we were looking for nurses and techs that had, you know, at least five years of experience. Mm-hmm. And we know just among our own clients right now that uh, many people are are having to start hiring new uh, new grads. And, you know, so they were talking about how, uh, you know, we, we have to recognize that sometimes that can be a real advantage. Mm-hmm. You know, you get to train somebody your way. You don't any, have any old habits that you have yeah. to break. You don't um, have to hear all the time, well, the hospital. That's right. <laughs> we, we did this. At the hospital, we did that. So, yeah, and, and yeah. often those those uh, the, that staff that came from the hospital mm-hmm. or from other surgery centers, for that matter, that might have been around for a long time, um, that they uh, they're kind of set in their ways, you know. Mm-hmm. And change is going to be very difficult for them. Yeah. Whereas a new grad is going to be excited about their new opportunities. Yeah, or they're looking for for an easier, yeah, more relaxed job, and that's not that's certainly not. What there are happens. many benefits, but that's not that's necessarily not one, of one of them. <laughs> We have not talked recently about credentialing. Um, as a matter of fact, last time we talked about it in a uh, podcast was in November of 2020. So mm-hmm. I think it's about time that we uh, revisit this uh, issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the reasons for that is that uh, it's become a, or well, it always has been a frequent issue during surveys, and it certainly isn't getting any better. And COVID really has affected this area because uh, there's been a lot of uh, experienced people, even in the, uh, in the area, credentialing who have left the industry. And therefore, it often falls upon nurse, nursing directors or even the administrators who are really busy right now with other issues. So in this episode, we decided to, to do a focus segment on credentialing and privileging. So let's take a short break. And when we get back, we'll talk about credentialing and privileging. As a leader in the ambulatory surgery industry, you already know that the ASC podcast with John Gailey is your ultimate free resource for staying updated with the latest news and information while ensuring your organization maintains regulatory and accreditation compliance. But did you know that we have two membership programs on our partner website, ASC Central, that can take your organization to the next level? For just $25 a month, our patron program will unlock a host of amazing benefits. Enjoy regular Zoom meetings with our hosts and special guests, access to recorded conferences like our credentialing seminar, conditions for coverage conference, medical director conference, and our most recent two-day multi-state conference. The patron program also offers a comprehensive database of policies, forms, drills, example minutes, and other invaluable resources to optimize your center's operations. For those centers that want even more, our new ASC Central Premium Access Plan offers a variety of online services to its members. The benefits include access to a wide range of services, including all of the benefits of the patron program, unlimited access to our popular boot camps, the ASC industry's most comprehensive training for ASC leadership. Members can attend any number of the ASC Administrator Boot Camps and ASC Director of Nursing Boot Camps and can listen to the recordings throughout their membership. It also includes unlimited access to the industry's most comprehensive infection control training designed for infection control coordinators and those that wish to take the Certified Ambulatory Surgery Center Infection Preventionist exam. And the program also includes up to five hours of private consultations by Zoom. For more information about these two programs, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com or click on the links in the show notes. So we thought the best way to start this conversation was to get the terminology correct. Um, so credentialing is the process of reviewing the provider's qualifications to be granted privileges. And privileging is the process of granting permission to the provider to perform specific procedures. So make sure in your minutes to properly reflect that terminology. A lot of people do tend to get that mixed up. Or yeah. They, they, 
use them interchangeably and it really isn't the same. And I think I've given some examples over time. You know, I remember doing a survey in an organization that uh, the minutes said that they credentialed all their providers. Mm -hmm. Now, there's so many things and that's all they said in the minutes. And the problem with that is you don't credential people Mm -hmm. uh, at the board meeting. What you're doing is you're privileging them. Uh, Credentialing is that whole behind the scenes Mm -hmm. process. Almost like a paperwork or an administrative type of a thing, which then the board will review and that's right. So the review, the, the board is reviewing the credentials, uh-huh. the credentialing work that was done, and then they're granting, actually granting the privileges. So as we always try to do when we're talking about uh, regulatory issues, is we'll uh, we'll start by talking about the conditions for coverage and the interpretive guidelines. The conditions for coverage, surgical services. This is four sixteen point four two. Surgical procedures must be performed in a safe manner by qualified physicians who have been granted clinical privileges by the governing body of the ASC in accordance with approved policies and procedures of the ASC. I always like to, when I teach this particular section, is just take that one, I think it is one sentence, Mm -hmm. and pull out the important words, you know, that could be bolded here. Um, So qualified physicians, of course, means you got to check the references. Granted clinical privileges by the governing body means that the governing body itself is the only body in the organization that can actually uh, grant those privileges. And in accordance with approved policies and procedures, the ASC indicates that you've got to have written procedures somewhere that outlines this. And by the way, often those uh, policies and procedures with regard to credentialing and privileging are actually located in the medical staff bylaws, not necessarily the policies and procedures of the organization, or might be in both places. So let's talk a little bit about the interpretive guidelines for this. And if, uh, you know, if you follow us closely, you know the interpretive guidelines are, are uh, guidelines that are provided by CMS to surveyors as to what to be looking for during a survey. And this is, uh, this is a, a list of three things that the surveyor is going to be looking for. Uh, the surveyors will determine whether the ASC has policies and procedures that establish the criteria and process the governing body uses when granting surgical privileges to a physician. And they also ask for documentation that the governing body approved these policies and procedures. Then the surveyors will often ask the ASC to identify each physician who currently has surgical privileges or who had surgical privileges within the previous six months. And then they're going to ask the ASC for documentation of the governing body's action to grant privileges to each of these physicians. And then for each surgical case record that is reviewed as part of the survey team's medical record review, they're going to verify that the individual performing the surgery was a physician who had been granted privileges by the ASC's governing body. And I should note specific privileges for the procedures that are being done. You can't just grant privileges like orthopedic procedures or GI procedures. Mm-hmm. You've got to be specific about what procedures they're granting. Next is 416.45, condition for coverage, medical staff. The medical staff of the ASC must be accountable to the governing body. The first standard is membership and clinical privileges. Members of the medical staff must be legally and professionally qualified for the positions to which they are appointed and for the performance of privileges granted. The ASC grants privileges in accordance with the recommendations from qualified medical personnel. And the second standard, reappraisals. Medical staff privileges must be periodically reappraised by the ASC. The scope of procedures performed in the ASC must periodically be reviewed and amended as appropriate. And the third, other practitioners. If the ASC assigns patient care responsibilities to practitioners other than physicians, it must have established policies and procedures approved by the governing body for overseeing and evaluating their clinical activities. So a couple of real takeaways from this is that the uh, um, you're going to need to have qualified medical personnel that are going to review these files. So that's usually going to be a, a, a you know a physician, for example. It can't be just the administrator and the director of nursing who who looks at these things uh, prior to granting or pri- prior to recommending to the governing body that uh, privileges be granted. Uh, also important to remember that you got to follow the requirements for reappraisals or recredentialing uh, based upon whatever your state or uh, accreditation organization requirements are. And the scope of procedures performed in the ASC must be periodically reviewed and amended as appropriate. And that means that we need to remember that whoever, whatever privileges you're granting, they need to be on your list of, uh, of approved procedures or your scope of privileges. So I really recommend, uh, we really recommend that you look at that on an annual basis. And then that standard with regard to other practitioners, they're, of course, talking about CRNAs, PAs, you know, licensed advanced practice nurses, et cetera, uh, that uh, might not uh, be on the um, employment of the organization. 
And this is what the interpretive guidelines suggest for surveyors to look for. Uh, they're going to ask the ASC's leadership to explain its process for granting clinical privileges, and they're going to look for documentation of that. They're going to review a sample of credential files to verify the medical staff has been granted those clinical privileges. And they're going to expect to see at a minimum documentation of their state licensure, registration, or state certification as applicable, uh, certification by a specialty organization as appropriate, uh, any other training or pertinent experience, evidence of a recommendation by qualified medical personnel concerning uh, the practitioner's competence, usually meaning, you know, peer references, uh, the scope of the procedure of the privileges granted to the practitioner, and if the governing body granted privileges against the recommendation of the qualified medical personnel, its rationale for doing so. And hopefully that's going to be very rare. So if a medical practitioner recommended that you uh, you don't grant privileges, you better have a darn good reason for uh, not following those recommendations. And then uh, they'll determine whether the ASC's review of each practitioner's record provides evidence that they are legally and professionally qualified to exercise the privileges that are going to be granted to them by the ASC. So let's continue by talking about the background and qualifications review for these practitioners. You're going to want to have a physician or any other practitioner complete an application or reapplication. So this is going to have to be a, an information sheet. It can be short, but it has to be comprehensive. Uh, you know, the application, the initial application in particular has to be, uh, you know, quite long and lengthy. And there's a lot of recommendations out there or examples out there. Uh, but most likely you're going to want to follow whatever your accreditation organization requires. Reapplications can be shorter, but you are going to have to have reapplication done. And it's got to give the ability for the provider to update any information in their initial application, as well as to sign off on, you know, all the attestations and giving them permission to do a background check. Uh, and that obviously make sure that they do sign off on that application. They want to make sure that uh, you obtain a list of procedures that they wish to be privileged to perform for the delineation of privileges. So don't forget, we call that the DOP or delineation of privileges. So you're going to want to have that included in uh, the application. For physicians, you want to access the AMA, the American Medical Association database, and we'll give uh, links to the uh, the organizations here that I'm mentioning. Uh, AMA provides primary source verification for physicians. Doesn't do it for CRNAs, podiatrists, or dentists, but anybody that uh, is a physician will hopefully have a, a listing in the AMA database, and they don't have to be members of the American Medical Association for this information to be av- available. This is going to save the organization a substantial amount of time sending letters to the schools and places where they did their residence and training or any other verification process they might have. And what's really nice about the AMA profile is it it covers a lot of the different requirements that you have out there. And if the AMA profile is complete, you'll be able to verify the following information. The education, uh, the residency programs that they've had, uh, any fellowships, uh, their board certification or eligibility, Uh, their DEA status, their license status, and any other issues with the physician, particularly with regard to privileges that they might have had at other institutions. Podiatrists do have uh, a similar system over at the American Board of Podiatric Medicine. And again, I'll give you a reference for that. And again, just like the AMA, they do perform uh, primary source verification, uh, but and you will have to pay for that service just like the AMA. For CRNAs, the... uh, you can access the National Board of CRNAs uh, website, which is a free service, by the way. And again, I'll give a link to that. And that surveyors don't recognize that as a primary source, but it is. It says right on the site. Yeah. So we just recommend maybe printing out that page that says that it is a primary source verification. Yeah, you have. You're absolutely right. That that actual certification page that comes out that shows the pay, the, uh, the the CRNA's name doesn't actually say that it was a primary mm-hmm. source. And I've run into at least a couple surveyors over yeah, time that argue familiar. that it's not primary source. Mm-hmm. I usually I usually can get that you know to not be a citation by taking yeah. a surveyor to the website, but we all know that sometimes surveyors don't uh, uh, don't take kindly to uh, to that type of yeah, intervention. Better to be prepared, right? <laughs> Um, you're also going to have to verify current licensure and any licensure issues. So you're going to want to go to the state education department's website and search for that practitioner's name. Uh, you'll have to do this for all practitioners in your facility, uh, including the nursing staff and rad techs, PAs, et cetera, anybody that works there. 
And you want to print out that verification information uh, and initial it with the date. So you want to know who actually prepared that. I ran into a situation recently where the surgery center was actually requiring the employees to do their own reference check or their own verification and then they would put that into the file which completely goes against the whole concept mm-hmm. of primary source verification you need to be doing this independently of the uh, the applicant uh, if the state website also has any information on any license issues you're going to want to follow those uh, links uh, and print uh, any of those links out if there's anything uh, you know negative in the file about that patient and you want to include that of course in the credential file you also have to run the National Practitioner Data Bank Report. Again, I'll give you a link for that. And for each practitioner, check their current NPDB report and print uh, print out you know any uh, the entire report and including the credential file. And you want to investigate any discrepancies between this report and the application, uh, and give the uh, the physician or the the applicant an opportunity to correct any changes. Uh, if they uh, did falsify any information, then that is grounds for not granting privileges or eventually taking away from the, the uh, practitioner. And it, we have seen that before where people have uh, accidentally forgotten to include something or purposely did that. Mm-hmm. And you really need to consider all malpractice cases in the determination of, of uh, granting privileges. You also want to check the Medicare Excluded Individuals database uh, and make sure the practitioner has not been excluded from the Medicare uh, program, and you want to print out that report that shows that they're not in that data database. If there is no uh, American Medical Association report available, you're going to need to verify the DEA and board certification uh, independently. And we'll give you a link to verify the DEA directly. You're going to have to go to the website um, and follow the instructions on the website to validate the DEA. It's actually a little time-consuming because they ask a number of different questions there, and you're going to have to have a lot of information in front of you. And then they're going to give you a verification screen that you should then print out for proof of primary source verification of their DEA. You also want to check references and hospital affiliations for all of your applicants. You're going to need to send letters or emails to each of the individual references asking for their assessment of the individual skills, knowledge, and practice. Uh, It's only really necessary upon initial application. Uh, After that, you're going to have to use your peer review uh, program to determine whether to continue their privileges. Uh, however, your state or your accreditation organization might require those peer references upon recredentialing. You do want to send letters to each of the hospitals the physician has listed uh, on their uh, application, um, and they're going to want to uh, verify the privileges, the status of those privileges, and if there's if the hospital is aware of any malpractice suits or if the hospital has had any issues with that practitioner. You also want to provide them a list of the procedures that they're requesting for, requesting to do at your facility, namely the, the delineation of privileges, um, and then uh, ask the hospital to validate that they do have those same privileges there. You want to verify that malpractice coverage does exist and it's current and make sure that this is monitored. In other words, if it expires, um, that you get a current copy of that. Same thing with any licenses or any of the things that expire. You want to keep that up to date. Uh, can't kind of keep a spreadsheet of all of the the expiration dates so that you can follow up on a timely basis. As I mentioned earlier, you're going to want to review the malpractice cases and look at the malpractice claims history to determine that there are no problems and that um, uh, that that you can see in the, the claims history, especially any pending cases that could be uh, quite detrimental to that individual. And for recredentialings, make sure that you've created a summary of the peer review for that practitioner and that it shows no major issues. And remember that peer review is not just random chart audits. It's focused chart audits. It's a review of any complaints, um, you know, any uh, issues with the practitioner and, uh, and your own staff. All of those things should be discussed as part of that peer review process that you need to do for recredentialing. Mm-hmm. Another thing that tends to be forgotten is that all of your physicians have to go through orientation and annual training. It doesn't need to be as comprehensive, of course, as your own staff, but they have to have, uh, you know, quite a, quite a number of things. They need to know how to handle, uh, you know, a code blue. They need to know what to do in the event of a fire or disaster. Uh, they're going to have to know your peer review process, quality improvement, infection control, et cetera. So, uh, it, it, and it really has to be documented there. And, uh, also, another thing that I sometimes find is that ASCs forget 
to get a new delineation of privileges upon recredentialing. Uh, so you need to have a new delineation of privileges each time that individual is be, being recredentialed. And that delineation of privileges, regardless of whether it is uh, the initial or a reapplication, needs to be signed off by the medical director and or, you know, the, the director of the specialty, if you have uh, uh, specialty directors. And then for the final privileges, a board member should be approving the privileges or the president of the board. The signature of the medical director should be dated. Uh, and if they granted temporary privileges, uh, you need to follow that date to make sure that you don't go beyond when you're granting the privileges at the board level. You don't want to go beyond the two or three year requirement that you might have. And then you want to review all of this data to make sure that this is a provider you really want to have on your medical staff. You want to investigate any inconsistencies and make sure that the medical staff executives are aware of the malpractice history and any licensure issues. And when in doubt, ask for more information from the provider. Now, another issue that comes up periodically is that you can't uh, verify that the practitioner has privileges to do certain procedures at another institution or hospital. And in that situation, you're going to have to get very detailed information about their training in those procedures and the experience they have in doing those procedures. If they've never done those procedures anywhere else, be very careful about having them done at your facility. You'll need to show that they are uh, being properly mentored or otherwise qualified. Some other important things for you to watch out for, the governing body minutes need to reflect the privileging. You want to use the term privileging in the minutes. You want to show the exact name of the provider and the dates the privileges are granted for. Make sure that the time frame meets the CMS state or accreditation time frame, which is generally either two or three years. And then if your own medical staff bylaws set other uh, time frames, for example, some medical staff bylaws say that their initial privileging is only for one year, uh, you need to make sure that you follow that requirement from your own medical staff bylaws or change those bylaws. And by the way, that's one of the other reasons that the governing body needs to meet more frequently than annually because uh, you really don't want to be granting privileges for, you know, temporary privileges for, you know, 11 and a half months if uh, the, that individual just missed uh, the last recredentialing period uh, at the board level. And you want to investigate any issues, malpractice cases, any licensing or privileging issues, and address it in the credential file in writing uh, as to why you granted those privileges based upon those findings. We're going to provide links to various resources in our show notes, including the AMA database that provides primary source verification for physicians, uh, the American Board of Podiatric Medicine primary source verification webpage uh, for the CRNAs, the access to the National Board of CRNAs, uh, the uh, link to the National Practitioner Data Bank, and the link to the DEA. And also remember that we do have a credentialing training program available, and we'll provide a link in our show notes to that. We're going to be doing a new uh, two-day program sometime in the quarter one, 2024, that will include a new section on peer review. So, uh, again, I'll give you a link to that in the show notes. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, we'll talk about things that are coming up in the ASC industry. In this segment, we provide an update on upcoming topics for the podcast, our upcoming virtual conferences, and speaking engagements for John and his staff, and other events in the ASC industry. So the California Ambulatory Surgery Association, or CASA, conference and exhibits is September 13th through the 15th at the Portola Hotel and Spa at the Monterey Bay Inn in Monterey, California. And Sue, I, we're very sad about this. We uh, we love going to the California conference. We mm-hmm. just could not fit it in this year, unfortunately. So hopefully we'll get back there next year. The Ohio Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's annual education conference and exhibit is September 19th through the 20th at the Hilton Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And we'll have a special episode including interviews with some of the speakers. The Idaho Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual conference is September 21st to the 22nd at the Hilton Garden Inn in Boise, downtown. And the New York State Association of Ambulatory Surgery Center's 2023 annual conference will be held October 4th through the 6th, 2023 at the Desmond Hotel in Albany, New York. John will be speaking and moderating some sessions and we'll have a special episode with interviews and there'll be a whole bunch of us there. That's right. I think it's 12 people, and and it will be our annual New York State 
uh, client conference there as well as uh, we'll have three sessions for the pre-conference that are mm-hmm. be sponsored by the ASC podcast. So if you're from New York State, uh, don't miss that opportunity. And the Washington Ambulatory Surgery Center Association's annual education conference and trade show is November 9th and 10th, 2023 at the Tulalip Resort and Spa in Tulalip, Washington. And I'll be speaking there and we hope to have a special episode with interviews also. And we did announce recently the October cohort of the ASC Director of Nursing Bootcamp. For more information about that, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. And then we also announced the January 2024 cohort of the ASC Administrators Bootcamp. And again, uh, you can get information about either of these bootcamps at ASCPodcast.com or at our new uh, sister website at ASC-Central.com. And on-demand versions of the ASC Director of Nursing and ASC Administrators Bootcamps are available at our sister website, ASC-Central.com. Also, don't forget about our recorded events. They're all available on ASCPodcast.com. The Credentialing Conference, which we recorded in 2020. The Fall 2022 Finance and Accounting Conference. Conditions for Coverage Conference, recorded in 2021. And the Medical Director Conference, recorded in 2021 also. And also, you might be interested in our June 2023 on-demand version of the Multi-State Conference, mm-hmm. which is eligible for 16 AEUs and 4 IPCH credits. So it's a, it's a great deal at $299.99. The conference includes great sessions on infection control, life safety, survey preparation, human resources, uh, an introduction to the Medicare ASC payment system, uh, a pharmacy update, and an interesting discussion from Ann Geyer about staff retention. And we do want to remind everyone to become a patron member of the podcast. The patron member program, also known as ASC Central, is an exclusive membership website that provides a one-stop ASC regulatory and accreditation compliance operations and financial management resource for those busy administrators, nurse managers, and business office managers. Resources include some of our virtual conferences, links, policies and procedures, forms, and fire and disaster drills. Another big benefit, of course, is those weekly drop-in sessions with the hosts of the podcast and and other individuals, including other surveyors. Membership helps to defray the cost of producing the podcast, including the research staff, travel costs to conferences, equipment costs, and production costs. For more information, you can visit us at asc-central.com or ascpodcast.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. If you found this episode informative, we encourage you to share it with your friends and colleagues in the ASC industry. And don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Uh, we would love any feedback about our episode or ideas for future episodes by sending us an email at comments at ASCpodcast.com. We'd like to give a special thank you to our great team here who make this podcast possible. Our sound editor is Susan Cronkite, our executive producer, John Gailey. And our dedicated research team, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, Zach Calaritis, Jim Masters, Amy Cronkite, Lori Rodericks, Kathy Foti, Donna Macchio, and Christina Norma. We couldn't do it without them. Music is provided by Media Sushi and Mike Noah, and the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available on all major podcast platforms. Thanks for listening. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Surgical Information Systems, Trivalence, and Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. Surgical Information Systems provides cutting-edge information solutions for surgery providers. Trivalence offers a comprehensive next-generation ASC solution that optimizes payment and supply chain performance, enabling actionable insights. Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies is the nation's leading regulatory and accreditation compliance resource for ambulatory surgery centers. For more information about our sponsors, visit our website at ASCPodcast.com. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute, legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development. All rights are reserved. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. 
We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.